We're going to be uh, looking at 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. If you want to turn there, it's page 933 in your pew Bibles. And before we do that, I'm just going to open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this opportunity to gather here this morning to worship you as we've done, to turn to your word, to guide us, to shape our lives, to shape our hearts, Father. And I recognize that even as we were singing this morning, when we sing something like, come Lord Jesus, come, I know there's a part of our hearts that's hesitant, Father, because we, we like this life and because we, uh, we do have that little bit of doubt still that you really will give us all this and more the joy that we experience in this life. But we know that you promise that life with you eternally is going to be even better. And so I just ask that as we open your word, as we look at the past year and we look at this passage, Father, that you would stir that up in our hearts, that we would take joy in that future hope that we have and that we would be able to say with a little more confidence, come, Lord Jesus, come that we would know we really do look forward to gathering around your table of grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Being a New Year's sermon, I figured it was appropriate to start off by talking about the year that has come before. I think if we're honest, it's true that 2016 was a heavy year on a lot of fronts. There are a lot of different natural disasters it started off with something like a natural disaster, a big winter storm that took over the northeastern states. We might be a little more familiar with the snow than they are, but for them it was a pretty big crisis and over 40 people died in that first winter storm. There were also earthquakes in Taiwan, New Zealand, Italy, Japan, and Indonesia. There was a big hurricane that struck Haiti as well as the southern portion of the states. And there were fires in California and Tennessee and for once, those natural disasters came a little closer to home than most of us experienced with the Fort McMurray fire as well that affected many people that we knew kind of second or third hand. And uh, it was a heavy year in terms of nature. Seems like every year it's getting more and more that way, doesn't it? Alongside that, it was a year full of war. Good war on some level. There was big progress in the fight against ISIS as uh, the allies there managed to progress into Aleppo. But lots of images surfaced about how bad of a situation that was for those who are living in the midst of it. And it makes us wonder, is this really what we can place our hope in? This type of war that leaves people so devastated, even as it's a good cause to stop an evil organization like ISIS. And alongside that, ISIS increasingly has been turning its attention to international warfare to try and make up for the fact that they're losing the war on home territory. And so it was a year full of many different terrorist attacks. This was the most done by ISIS specifically yet. In 2014, the year that it took over and declared its caliphate, there was only seven attacks abroad by them. Last year, there was 23. This year, I saw 34 listed and maybe another one going on in Turkey just uh, the last couple days. So. Um, uh, a, a lot of different attacks going on from this organization that's attempting to make us uh, fear for our very lives and question our values. Out of those, one that really, again, struck 
pretty close to home, not, not in Canada, but in the United States, the worst mass shooting in the United States ever. 49 people dead and targeting specifically gay people at a club because of the fact that Islamic extremists think that those people deserve to die. And as Christians, I hope our hearts were grieved to see that type of targeting. That, that even if we disagree with choices that people are making, we don't believe they should be killed for those things. It was a heavy year in politics too, with some big, surprising changes going on. The first was what's been dubbed Brexit. The decision of the United Kingdom to leave the European Union, resulting in Cameron's resignation. Something that many people said couldn't possibly happen. That it was the type of thing that surely they would not do, that anybody in the right mind would know this was a bad decision. But they did it anyways. And there are some who are celebrating it. Some who are saying this is actually a really good move. That it's going to be good for the UK in the long term. But in the short term, it has been devastating to them economically. There have been big troubles for them as a result of pulling out and the market confidence has been shattered in the United Kingdom. And then, of course, can't go past without mentioning this guy, Donald Trump. What may have been the worst American election in memory <laughs> in terms of the choices that were offered, and again, all of the pundits saying, no, no, surely he won't win the primaries, surely he won't win the election, and Donald Trump, who, who defied everybody's expectation, managed to make it all the way to the finish line and win the election. Again, this was a polarizing thing. Some people thought this was amazing. Some people thought this was the thing that they were looking forward to, that, that finally those establishment politicians were not getting their way. But many others thought, this is something that scares me. That the tone that he uses when he talks about women, or about other races, or about people of different sexualities, is scary for me. And it leaves me feeling like, if this can happen in the United States, could it happen here? Now again, whatever your perspective on Trump's election specifically, we have seen that it has given license to some people, and in particular, it has given license to those who would see other races kicked out from North America. And there has been a, a wave of different racist activities and, and white supremacists saying, we want you out, get out of our country. And that's certainly a scary thing, something that should shake us a little bit. And then, of course, there's the celebrity deaths. This large number of people who have died in the past year who were pretty important figures of this past generation. We have people like David Bowie and Prince and Leonard Cohen, backwards pitchers. <laughs> Musicians who were, who were ahead of their time and who fought for big causes, as well as Muhammad Ali, who was a real activist and a man of character. We also have actors, Rickman and Fisher and Reynolds. And we even had, I, I actually, looking it up, hadn't uh, really processed the magnitude of it, but Fidel Castro also passed away this year. Which, again, whether or not you think he was a good person, as far as political figures go, one of the biggest in the 20th century, certainly. This was a year where a lot of people died. And there were actually articles that were questioning, is this, is this as big as it seems, or is this just that every year we lose lots of famous people? But actually, no. This year, particularly early on and late in the year, there was a much higher than average number of, of famous people who were passing away. So whatever the cause of that, 
it left a lot of people feeling a little shaken and maybe feeling like the past is slipping away, things that they value, people that they cared about, were no longer going to be seen in the public spotlight. And of course, maybe the most important event, the most important celebrity passing of the entire year, Harambe. <laughs> now, of course, I, I say that to elicit a laugh, because on some level, it is a bit of a silly situation that people were so worked up about a gorilla dying instead of harming a child. <laughs> which I think anybody here would say, yeah, I think that the child is more important. But at the same time, the fact that the only thing I could find to elicit a bit of a laugh was the death of a gorilla, it's a little bit sad in its own right. When I was trying to look up years in review, all of them were overwhelmingly negative. There was not a lot of sense that there was a lot of good, exciting things taking place in the world over the past year. As Christians, this should really make us pause. We have to stop and, and ask ourselves, how do we deal with that type of negativity? We are supposed to be a people that are characterized by hope. This is one of the defining marks given in the Bible that we should be characterized by faith, hope, and love. And yet in a world where so many things seem to be negative, when every time you log into Facebook, you see people either, either upset or hurting about something or fighting about something, it can be hard. It can be hard to be that type of people that characterized by hope. And this is where we have to, have to, have to be able to focus back in on the core claims of our faith to be able to recognize the hope that we have is not always something that we feel, but it is something we can believe in and stand on. That it is Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that should shape even the way that we view a year like 2016. 1 Corinthians 15 may be one of the best passages in Scripture at laying out what it is that we hope in when we talk about hoping in the coming of Christ. I'm going to cover the whole chapter, but I want to try and take it pretty broadly. So don't worry, it's not going to be too heavy to have a walkthrough. But if you want to start with me in verse 1, we'll dive on in. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I, was because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. 
Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Paul starts out this section, which is towards the end of the letter and really summarizing what he wants the Corinthians to be united in as a people by reminding them of the core message, the thing that he has preached to them as the heart of the gospel. What we see here is a story laid out, a story that we've covered quite a bit, quite extensively over the last few weeks in our build-up to Christmas and, and on Christmas Day. Paul says that Jesus came to die for our sins, that he, he laid his life down as a perfect demonstration of God's forgiveness, as a substitute for us, that he was buried, dead physically, but then three days later he was raised in accordance with the promises of Scripture. And then after that, he went out and he appeared to many of his disciples, revealing himself, restoring their hope, exciting them for the future that they had to come. I don't want to dive in too deep into any of this because we have covered it quite a bit. We recognize the importance that even at Christmas time and in the new year, it's vital for us to understand Christ's death for us, his resurrection, his victory over sin and death. But I want to point out one thing that's really easy to overlook here. We kind of take it for granted in the church, but it actually is quite unique about Christianity. And that's that the core teachings here are historic. By that, I don't mean that they can be proven historically, though I believe that's true as well. But there's going to be a lot of debate about that particular element. What I mean is simply the fact that these claims being made by Paul are actually supposed to be things that have taken place within human history. This is actually unique to Christianity. Most world religions tend to focus on universals. They talk about things that we can believe about the nature of the universe and things that we can do to be good people and in tune with that universe. They tend to focus on things that they would say are true yesterday, today, and forever, and that anybody in any culture should be able to embrace them. Now, every religion has stories in it, but most of those times, those stories are meant to illustrate the timeless truths. They're there to point us towards the things that are behind the stories. Christianity is not like that. Christianity is fundamentally a tale of a God who acts in human history. That things have happened in the past, the creation and the fall, and that God is intervening and that he has done something in Christ in human history that will shape history from then on. This is really important for us to understand. I think in part because of the fact that people crave a real hope that's going to take place in history. It's nice to know what it means to be a good person. It's nice to be able to meditate and find peace in the midst of chaos. Those are nice things to have, and, and many religions have a lot of wisdom to offer about how we can find those things, those, those peaceful experiences. But I think there's something in the human heart that knows that's not enough. 
that if I spend my years dealing with the challenges of this broken world, and the best I can do is find some good tips on how to be a better person, how to find a little bit of peace in the midst of this, that's not satisfying to my soul. We want to know that real life, this timeline that we're living in, the things that we're doing, actually matter. That history itself will bear out the results of what's being done by God and by us. And Christianity offers that very type of hope. The Bible is all about history. That's important because as Paul turns to the next part of his discussion, he's really taking that for granted and he's, he's wrestling with some objections to the doctrine of the resurrection. Kind of objections that come up now and then, even in our own day. Let's read the next part. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, in fact, Uh, Sorry, he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. The objection that Christ anticipates to his claims about this story, that Jesus is raised from the dead, ties in with a debate that was going on in his day between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were a group of Jews who believed that the, the reading of the Old Testament that said that ultimately God would raise everybody back from the dead, that there would be a day of judgment, and we would come back into a bodily existence again. That was false. The Pharisees held it to be true, but the Sadducees objected and said, no, that's not true. That really the things that the Bible has to teach us are, are just for this life, that they help us to be better moral people, but that ultimately that, that idea of a resurrection of the dead is untrue. This is actually something that many people today will still tell you. They'll say that all of that idea about a future resurrection, that's silly. Even Christians. There's, there's one saying that I've heard floating around recently that it doesn't really matter if Jesus is raised from the dead or if 
we're going to be raised from the dead because God is a God of resurrection, by which they mean that God is always bringing about good things, new hope in the midst of tough circumstances. They say that's what matters more, is this that we know God is good and that he's going to bring out good out of evil. Paul doesn't buy it. Neither do I. He, he says, no, it's really important that we believe in a historic resurrection of the dead as a future event, and equally that we believe that Christ himself is the first person to experience this. That when he was raised from the dead, he wasn't just brought back to life for a period of time. He was raised to eternal life with God, to a body that would not perish, and that we know that that means we too will be raised in such a way. He calls Christ the first fruits. That's a harvest analogy, the first grains to come in from the field in a good harvest. And he's saying Christ is that, the first gathering, the first taste of the glory that's to come for all of us. Why is this important to him? He actually says in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. You see, Paul recognizes that Christians are being persecuted all around him. And this is true through most of human history. That most of the last 2,000 years, when Christians have really come to faith and, and been passionate about their faith, it has led to them coming into conflict with the powers of their day and being persecuted for it. This is something we're largely insulated from here in this time. But across the world, throughout most of history, maybe not too long from now in our own country, we don't know. That's not the way that it's been. Christians have not been the norm. Christians have not been the power. Christians have often been the ones who are being oppressed by the powers. And he's saying, look, it's pitiful if we're holding on to this message that Jesus is Lord, that he's been raised from the dead, and we're suffering for it, if all we get is a little bit of momentary alleviation. <laughs> we're heaping much more trouble on ourselves than we're gaining by believing this. But he says, don't fear. Christ really has been raised from the dead, as attested to by the witnesses that had come before and because of that, we know everyone's going to be raised back to new life. Now, I want to be careful. This doesn't necessarily mean that all are going to enter into God's kingdom. In fact, just the opposite. Paul makes it very clear that after everyone's been raised from the dead, then everything's going to be subjected to God, and there's going to be lots of things that are cast out and done away with. This is something that we cringe a little bit about. When Amanda was reading the passage that I had her pick for this morning, and uh, she was getting to the end, you, you feel a little bit of a cringe that it ended on the note of, here's the second death. <laughs> All that oppose Christ will be cast into the lake of fire. It is a heavy truth, but it actually is a truth that we should, in some sense, take joy in. The reality is, we know this world is not a good world. And we know that people are not really good. That they have good parts to them, but they also have a lot of bad parts. I don't want the next world, the next life, to be the same as this one. Oh, there are parts of it that I want there. 
But there are also lots of parts that I don't want to be present in God's kingdom. And we recognize that there is hope in the fact that Christ will not permit anything or any person that opposes him into his kingdom. There will be no sin. And because there will be no sin, there will be no death and no suffering. There will be no enmity in God's kingdom. This is actually a hopeful message, even though it's a heavy one. There's a lot of debate about the exact order of events that are going to take place towards the end times. I'll be honest, I haven't studied that particular topic very deeply. I don't have a vested opinion in it, and I don't really even want to seek one out because it seems to me a lot of it is very speculative. But here we have an order for the future laid out that is simple and I think good. I can embrace what Paul says here as a genuine order of what's going to take place sometime in our future. Because Christ has been raised, so too will all that have faith in him be raised, and then ultimately everybody in the world, that there will be a day of judgment, and that on that day of judgment, God's kingdom will be established on earth. That there will be nothing that resists his dominion. All enemies will be put under his feet, and ultimately death itself will be done away with. This is a good thing. And I love that it's not just claiming that this is a good idea that helps us find hope in this life, but actually it's going to happen. It really is going to happen. We know because Christ was raised from the dead. Christ's coming should be something that gives us tremendous hope. The next section, Paul addresses another objection or possible objection. He says, well now, if there is no resurrection, or if there is no resurrection, what will those who, uh, who are baptized for the dead do? If the dead are not raised at all, why do people get baptized for them? This is something <laughs> I'm just going to leave mostly aside. There's a lot of debate about this particular verse and what it means. It's possible that some people were being baptized on behalf of people who had faith but didn't have a chance to get baptized. It's possible that it's just referring to being baptized and that our bodies being part of a symbol like that doesn't make sense if there's no resurrection. He says, as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I'm actually going to stop there and say, that part was supposed to be part of what I just said. <laughs> so that was my own little, I stopped too early in the passage, but that all touches on what I was just talking about, the suffering that they're going through, the, the quest for holiness, and the fact that all of this is in vain without Christ coming back. The objection comes next. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not just plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh will be the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. 
There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another and the stars another. And star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of a heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The objection that, Christ is ad- uh, that Paul is addressing here is this objection, well, what does it mean that we're going to be raised into a spiritual body? This is a very odd statement by you, Paul. And Paul acknowledges this is a bit of a mystery. We don't understand it fully, but in Christ we have some revelation of what it's going to be like. That in the future day we're going to have bodies. That there are going to be bodies that can be touched, that walk, that sense things, that smell and hear and feel. All of those things that we cherish so much about this life. But he says at the same time, the spiritual body is going to be even better than the body that we have presently. They're like a grain of wheat being planted in the ground and bursting into this new form, this new body. Our, our bodies are like seeds that are planted and then are going to come out with an even better form, something greater, something glorious, something imperishable. He says we get to hope for an even better version of this life. And where does this leave us today? The last thing Paul says in this passage. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul is saying, we have hope that when we go out into the world and preach this gospel, when we share with people the hope that we have in Christ, we know we're doing work that has eternal value. Nothing can stop this from happening. Christ is coming. The dead are going to be raised. 
we are going to have new life. God's kingdom is going to be established. Those who are willing to repent and follow him will get to live eternal, immortal, good lives. And so he exhorts us, do the work of the Lord. Get out there. There's a world that's waiting for this kind of hope. Be willing to tell people about it. Even if it means it's going to be uncomfortable for you. Even if it means it's going to be persecution that you face. He's talking to people who could be imprisoned or even killed for what it is that they believe. And he still says, this is not going to be in vain. This may seem trite. When we look back on a year like 2016, it may seem silly to say the most important thing we can do is go out and tell people about Jesus. To point out that he's been raised from the dead. And that means we are going to be raised from the dead. But Paul doesn't think that's trite. And neither do I. Not if it's true. And I believe it is. I believe the world is thirsty for something they can pin their hopes on. Something that's not just going to help them get through today, but it's actually going to matter long term. So I'm happy to throw myself into that work. I don't know about you, but I've seen glimpses of God's mission going forward in 2016. When I ask myself, what positives can I gain? The funny part is, on a cultural, global level, it's hard to find something because so often this thing, this moving forward of the message of Christ is subtle. It's something that goes on as an exchange between individuals. It's something that goes on within churches that are increasingly overlooked. It's something that goes on, in my case, with a group of students who are up at Trent University. But you know what? The message is going forward. And people are trusting in Christ. I saw a Facebook post by one of the students I work with yesterday that encouraged me greatly. I took a screenshot of it. I'm going to read it out loud for those who can't see at that distance. This young woman said, I'm not usually one to post long and cheesy messages publicly, but I thought this year was worth it. Earlier this year, I lost sense of who I was. My motivation for my studies completely dropped, leaving me with limited options for post-secondary. I decided to pick Trent University with no real motivation to go, aside from that I needed to move on with my life. The last six months of my life have caused me to find myself in ways I never thought possible. If you had told me six months ago that I would have really discovered my love for Jesus and turned my life to him, I wouldn't have believed you. I really found the meaning of how it is, that one, uh, how it is one thing to believe but another to live a life like him. I have met some of the most amazing people who I cannot even begin to explain how grateful I am for them. So I guess this year taught me 
that while things may be tough at one point in life, it's going to lead you to exactly where you'll need to be. I really started looking at life with a positive outlook and reflecting on how precious life really is. Thank you, 2016. Game on, 2017. This is a first-year student at Trent who came out to one of our first events on campus and has been flourishing ever since. This is not going to get any media attention. In fact, just the opposite, probably the public thinks people being converted is not a really good thing. But when I see the change that's going on in her life and the hope that she's expressing in this message, that excites me. And it excites me because I believe it's a true hope that she's pinning her life on. A good Lord who is raised from the dead and a good future for all those who are willing to follow him. So then what do we make of 2016? Well, we, we recognize it was a heavy year and we should grieve those heavy things. We should feel the weight of it. But we should not be struck down by those heavy things. We of all people should be the type who are able to be completely realistic about how hard the world is and at the same time filled with a hope. Christ is coming. Let's be ready for it and let's help others do the same. Come on up, worship team. So please stand with us as we uh, sing this song.